I hardly ever heard the word Cambodia. I was deprived of that word. I didn't even know what the Khmer Rouge was. In high school, my friend told me that America had bombed Cambodia. I sat there staring at my friend in disbelief. But just to make sure, I googled it. And much to my horror, what she told me was true. America did bomb Cambodia in 1969. But that wasn't the only time. President Nixon and Mr. Kissinger unleashed 100,000 tons of bombs, the equivalent of five Hiroshima's. The bombing was their personal decision, illegally and secretly. I learned that from 1969 to 1973, the U.S. bombed Cambodia as a strategy to prevent the spread of communism. My name is Marissa, and this is the story of how I learned to reclaim my family's Cambodian history. It's a history of almost being erased. I was born in the United States. My parents immigrated here from Cambodia in the early 2000s, more than 20 years after the defeat of the Khmer Rouge, the terrorist regime that took over the country in 1975. My grandma Chong said that for years, every time she went outside and heard an airplane, she was afraid. During Lomno, I had no idea what the Americans wanted from Cambodia. I wondered why they dropped those bombs. We went into the caves and sometimes we would even see dead bodies. One of my family members lost an arm and leg and passed away. I was so scared. I ran into the cave and would lay there, sometimes just to sleep. I couldn't believe that I'd grown up speaking Khmer and eating numbachok in Tengyit, but had never heard about any of this history. The more I learned, the more horrified I was about how little I knew about Cambodian history. A small country of 7 million people has been a neutral nation since the Geneva Agreement of 1954. American policy since then has been to scrupulously respect the neutrality of the Cambodian people. I learned that the United States went against the Geneva Agreement when they had bombed Cambodia. I started researching not just those 1969 bombings, but what happened next. Nixon doctrine for Southeast Asia appears to have failed. The war that began in Vietnam has now engulfed Cambodia. There's anger and frustration at the U.S. bombings. Thousands of lives lost, farms and livelihoods destroyed. Many are now turning to Khmer Rouge, who promised to reclaim Cambodia from the government of General Lol Nol, who was backed by Washington. But little is known of Khmer Rouge's leaders, or their true intentions. My family never told me about the Khmer Rouge. Maybe they thought I was too young, and were trying to protect me. I knew we were Cambodian, but it never occurred to me that there was a whole history I didn't know about. But being disconnected from my cultural history had an unintended consequence. I slowly stopped speaking Khmer at home. I started to assimilate into American culture. I thought this was what it meant to be an American, to leave the old country behind. The more I learned about the Khmer Rouge and the Cambodian genocide, the less I understood about why my family had never told me these stories. So I started to ask, both as a way of reconnecting with my cultural identity 
and understanding how the Khmer Rouge shaped my own family's history. But first, it's important to understand what was going on in the world at the time that the Khmer Rouge came into power in 1975. After those 1969 bombings, Cambodians were more than ready for leadership that would stand up to the U.S. and abolish Western influence. But it quickly became clear that the Khmer Rouge was a ruthless dictatorship. Their Maoist ideology championed the idea of starting over from scratch. They set their clocks to year zero. But starting from scratch didn't just apply to time. It also applied to the people they were ruling. Here's my grandma Pa. After the Khmer Rouge announcement that they had taken over the Phnom Penh capital and were now in power, they came to my home in a small group of four to five soldiers. I was at home just doing housework, and all of a sudden, they began checking everything in the house. They announced that all the belongings are no longer private. They all now belong to Angkor. The word Angkor means organization in the Khmer language and was a name used by the Communist Party of Cambodia during the Pol Pot regime. The Khmer Rouge wanted to create a classless society, eliminating private property and all social classes except peasants who worked as rural agricultural workers. My grandma Pat describes how it happened. When they arrived, they told me to gather all my belongings. It would be taken to the place where we all shared. All of my rice, I would weigh and distribute to people. Pots, hands, socks, they were all shared with everyone. I was devastated, thinking I worked so hard to get all of this and now it had to be distributed and gone. At first, I was so mad, but now I think back to it from time to time. I was scared of dying, so I shared just as they told me. My grandpa Hong had similar feelings. I still remember, we all were asked to change our clothes to one same black uniform. All belongings, including household items and jewelry, all were collected to be governed by Inca. They even took all of our pots and pans to take to the shared spot. All I had was a little water ladle in the water basin. Even rice or salt, they would take it to put in a shared place. Their rules and commands didn't make any sense. Inkar owned and controlled everything. At the same time, they claimed they were trying to improve the Cambodian economy. The Khmer Rouge's goal was to achieve an average yield of three tons of rice per hectare, about 2.5 acres throughout the country. This had never been done before and was practically impossible, but this goal forced Cambodians to work every day with little sleep or food. The rice they did gather was exported to other countries, leaving Cambodians with nothing but a few grains. When we came to eat rice, the officer yelled at us, saying some of us only knew how to eat and not work. I worked even when I was sick because I was scared of them suspecting or investigating me. There was a bowl of porridge, but nothing but water. This memory stays with me until this day. The Khmer Rouge didn't let people eat at their homes. And when we were eating food, they cooked it with the leaves on. They didn't wash it either. They never washed anything. They would cut it, quickly slash, slash, and throw it into the pot when the water boiled. We were like pigs. Cambodians were organized to work in different groups. Some were responsible for fishing. Some were sent to work in the rice field while others were asked to be cooks. 
cooking for everyone in the village. My grandpa Hong was assigned to be a fisher. I was ordered to go fishing, fishing all day long, almost having no time to rest every day. Sometimes it was all night long. I needed to use various tools to catch fish. When I couldn't satisfy them with the result, I was once sent to work on the rice field for around 40 days and later was sent back to go fishing again. My grandpa Hong was sent to the rice fields for 40 days as a punishment for not doing a good enough job fishing. Working in the rice fields was harder labor than fishing, and the ruthlessness of the Khmer Rouge didn't just apply to work practices. They targeted and killed anyone who opposed them. They killed intellectuals, anyone with more than a 7th grade education. Doctors, lawyers, teachers, even people who wore glasses or knew a foreign language. The idea was that if there were no intellectuals, there would be no one to resist the Khmer Rouge. They targeted anyone they perceived to be enemies of the regime, including the Chinese, Vietnamese, and people from other faith traditions, especially Cham Muslims. They wiped out 500,000 Cham Muslims, nearly 70% of the Cham Muslim population. For the four years that the Khmer Rouge was in power, they ignited hell among Cambodians. I feared getting tortured and killed the most. If I didn't follow their rules, they would take me to kill. The rules of the Khmer Rouge made me speechless. You couldn't depend on having a guaranteed life. All that was left was the day they would take you to kill. They killed anyone they suspected to be against them. Anyone disloyal to Ankar. Anyone could be killed at any time. Here's my grandma Bat again. I was most scared when I continuously heard of people getting caught and killed. There was shakiness under my skin. At that time, I was so miserable. I couldn't do anything because you couldn't say no to the rules of the Khmer Rouge. Between 1.5 and 3 million Cambodians were killed from the genocide. That's a quarter of the Cambodian population. Take a moment to try to process this number. 1.5 to 3 million. I don't know about you, but I can't process this number. I can't wrap my mind around millions of lives being lost. Historians say that the number of people killed in the Cambodian genocide was likely even higher. Nobody knows exactly how many people were killed because many of them were buried in mass graves, and there's no record of who died. My grandparents embody human resilience. They worked themselves nearly to death in order to escape death. Some chose to do the opposite, but with the same hope of surviving. My grandpa Song was one of those people. He decided to steal. Even though he knew that if he was caught, it meant death. It was his way of surviving and facing the fear of death. I used to steal some rice and coconuts. I stole right in front of their faces, but they didn't even notice. I would mix the rice, stir it and wash it, and carry it out in a pot and say it's for the cows to drink. But then I would take it home for us to cook rice. I would sneakily steal and just mix up my words a bit. I even stole coconuts, but they didn't suspect me. Oh, the punishments were death. My family was scared that I stole, but if I didn't steal, my family would be in a miserable state. Stealing and rebelling made me feel a sense of contentment and freedom. And then there were people like my grandma Gol, 
who somehow, even in the face of death, stopped fearing it and resisted. They were just standing and shouting at us on the field, and they didn't even help. I said that in the meeting. After the meeting, I came home, and my sister was working at the warehouse with me. My sister was crying because she knew that that night, there must be someone coming to take me to be killed. Right now, nobody can help you. You are too bold when speaking with no fear. Speaking up meant death at that time, yet I wasn't scared of death because life was too hard. I didn't want to live anymore. It was too hard. Living felt like dying. They were saying that I was Chinese and oppressed Khmer people. They were so rude to me, but I stayed silent. Later, we had another meeting in the fields. The officers announced whoever wanted to say anything should speak up. I spoke up, saying I was bullied by these boys, rudely calling me Chinese. I rejected their claims, saying I am Khmer. I don't speak Chinese, and I never oppressed anyone. Later, they told me not to speak like that and don't say anything about the people positioned by the Pol Pot Committee. Don't say things rudely about Khmer people. We are all Khmer anyways. The Cambodian genocide finally ended in 1979 when Vietnam invaded Cambodia and the Khmer Rouge was removed from power. Survivors fled to refugee camps in Thailand. Some of them, like my grandparents, immigrated to the United States. Here's my grandpa Hong again. I never imagined I could live to tell the story. And when I heard the announcement that it was victory over the Khmer Rouge, let me tell you honestly, I couldn't be happier. Nothing could be compared to that. And we didn't need any music or great wine for the party. We were dancing with a sound made from the bucket and would just drink coconut and put some alcohol on it. And we would enjoy the new life. We had too much fun. Just ask grandma and you'll know how fun it was. Here's how my grandma Go remembers the Vietnamese invasion. I was so happy when I heard the victory over Vietnamese armies over Pol Pot. I could finally go back to my hometown. I was cheering with other people. We escaped. We didn't have to starve again. We're going to have a good life now. I didn't know how to get back to my hometown. But even as she was cheering, she was still in survival mode. My grandma Go was an orphan after the genocide. She lost all of her family members. She didn't even know where she'd go or how she'd make money or get food. Eventually, some of her neighbors took her in and she was able to earn money helping out with farming and selling food at the market. She found a way to go on living, but those memories would stay with her forever. The Cambodian journalist Dith Pran coined the term the killing fields to describe the place where more than a million people were killed and buried in mass graves during the Khmer Rouge rule from 1975 to 1979. More than 20 years later, in 2010, the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia brought the former leaders of the Khmer Rouge to trial for their crimes against humanity. But many survivors of the Cambodian genocide feel that justice has never been served because Pol Pot and three of the other key Khmer Rouge leaders died before they could be prosecuted for their crimes. For my grandparents and other survivors of the Cambodian genocide, 
the horrors of the genocide are still with them today. My grandpa Hong shared this with me. I want to forget about these memories, but I can't when I reflect back on it. I can't forget because they tortured us. The reason I would like to forget is not to get angry and not to make me unhappy. I want to clear my mind, but I can't forget it. If we're talking about forgetting, it's just better to forget. Forget all of it. Don't dwell on the sufferings anymore. When I interviewed my grandpa's song for this story, I started to notice how hard it was for him, even today, to talk about what had happened. I saw the way his fingers twitched as he gripped and twisted the paper napkin in his hand. How his gaze trailed off into the corner of the room. How his voice shook and his body went still when he talked. We just think we are saved now. Now I'm living a good life so I can slowly begin to let go of the past. I don't want to put my body through it again. What's the point of keeping it inside me? If I forget it, I feel better. It's been so long. Let's just forget bits and pieces and only keep a few bits. I wanted to interview my grandparents and tell the story of what they survived because I didn't want to lose my own cultural history, even the horrible and painful parts of it. I wanted to share these stories with the wider world because if we don't remember them, we run the risk of repeating them. Telling these stories to younger generations is important. Although I think there has to be stories of the Khmer Rouge engraved into Cambodian history, I think I should just forget bits and pieces. After we had finished, I gave my grandpa Song a big hug. But for the first time, I wasn't sure that asking him to tell these stories was the right thing to do. Even though these things happened decades ago, I could see how much they still haunted him. When he got up and left the room, I saw that the napkin he'd been holding was shredded into pieces. I've yearned to hear and listen to my family's stories. I wondered what it was like for them, the brutal challenges, how they survived, what kept them going, but I hadn't anticipated how hard it would be for them to retell these memories, or how much they wanted to forget them. I thought back to the other conversations I'd have with my family. Even though they'd agreed to talk with me, they didn't want to talk about what they survived. Even though they hadn't explicitly said the words, they'd been trying to tell me this in their own way in every conversation. Here's my aunt Sim reflecting on the memories that still haunt the older generations. I don't want old people to think of only the past. They sleep at night and think about why they weren't brave enough to reply back to them, why they couldn't express their feelings and say what they wanted. My grandparents shared with me some of their most painful, vulnerable memories. Those memories still haunt them today. They haunt me too. It's been an honor to sit with my grandparents and hear these stories. It's changed me and made me feel deeply connected both to my family and to my country's history. I'm in awe of their ability to go on living after what they've experienced. I'm still trying to understand how to be that strong. In the best moments of those conversations, I felt close to my grandparents, like I could see them in a way that was deeper and more complicated than I had before. Sharing in someone else's pain is one of the most intimate acts of relationship. 
At the same time, I've come to realize how retelling these stories isn't always the best thing to do. It can be re-traumatizing to relive something so awful. I'm still grappling with that tension of living between the need to reconnect with my history and keep these stories alive and the need to protect my family from the pain of remembering. It's a tension that I don't think will ever go away. It's the tension we all live in when we face painful histories. But from this journey, I've also come to appreciate that part of my role as the younger generation is to be a truth teller and to keep these stories alive. Here's how my Aunt Moi Chang thinks about this. You are really not alone. You have someone else to listen to your story. By telling these stories, I'm helping to carry the burden and pain that my grandparents have lived with. I'll continue telling these stories to the next generation so they don't die with my grandparents. I'll pass them on to future storytellers, the voices that make sure that these stories are never forgotten. That my grandparents' pain and suffering was not for nothing. My grandparents, my parents, and now me. We are the voice of remembering. Music for this episode was from Blue Dot Sessions and Bandel Ample Band. A big thank you to my interviewees and to my voice actors who are instrumental in helping me put this together. Additionally, I would like to thank my mentor, Melissa Dydral and Laura Davis for their mentorship. This episode was produced by Marissa Mankian as part of the Sanford Storytelling Project. Thank you all for listening.